Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. This past week, the Jewish community has been observing and celebrating the holiday of Sukkot. Sukkot is a biblically announced holiday, and it is a seven-day holiday in the Torah. Uh, Traditional Jews observe it for the eighth day. In the Torah, the Torah says that the uh, seven days of Sukkot and that we should celebrate an eighth day. That eighth day is known as Shmini Atzeret, the gathering on the eighth day. Outside the land of Israel, the eighth day is doubled, making the final two days of the holiday a Yom Tov, a technical term which means there's no work. On the final day, it is customary to conclude the reading of the Torah cycle and immediately begin the annual Torah cycle, making that day Simchat Torah, the celebration or joy of Torah. It is an unusual religious expression in that the final verses of Torah, the final verses of Deuteronomy are read, and immediately thereafter, following the blessing of the Torah portion, Bereshit, the section of Torah known as Genesis, which we will discuss next week, uh, begins to be read. The Torah portion this week, however, is related to Sukkot. It is the Shabbat Chol HaMoed, the Shabbat in the middle of the seven days. And as has been explained often on the show, when there is a festival, the Torah reading is not in the order of the cycle. And so we are now completing the book of Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the Torah, but the Torah reading for this Shabbat is Exodus chapter 33 and chapter 34. And I'll just give it to you in a nutshell before we speak about the holiday. This week in the Torah portion read in sanctuaries, God agrees to Moses' request that God's presence only dwell among the Jews. Moses requests to be shown God's glory, and God agrees, but informs Moses that he will only be shown God's back and not God's face. You may remember that this transpires following the episode of the Golden Calf. Moses tell, God tells Moses to carve two tablets upon which God will engrave the Ten Commandments. Moses takes the new tablets up to Mount Sinai where God reveals his glory to Moses while proclaiming what is known in the tradition as the 13 attributes of mercy. God seals a covenant with Moses, assuring him again that his presence will only dwell with the Israelites. 
God informs the Israelites that he will make it possible for them to inhabit the land of Israel and instructs them to destroy all vestiges of idolatry from the land, not to make molten gods, to refrain from making any of the inhabitants of the land uh, members of the covenantal community. And in this week's Torah portion, we once again find the commandment to observe the three biblical festivals, including the holiday of Sukkot. In this week's Torah portion, the holiday is referred to as the festival of the ingathering at the turn of the year. And all males are commanded to make pilgrimage to the sanctuary, which eventually becomes the temple in Jerusalem during these three festivals. Well, this seven-day festival is certainly an unusual festival with many symbols and many possible interpretations. With me this morning to discuss them is Rabbi Paul Gollum. Rabbi Gollum is the senior scholar of Vassar Temple in Poughkeepsie, New York. And at one point in his long and illustrious rabbinic career, served as the director of the Canadian Council of Liberal Congregations, a gathering of 20-some congregations affiliated with the North American reform movement. Rabbi Gollum, welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. Well, uh, thank you very much. Uh, pleasure to be with you, and Hag Sameach. Hag, Hag Sameach to you and your family as well. So, <laughs> as you heard in my introduction, this is a multifaceted holiday, and um, I thought that we might begin in the most um, elementary sense, and that is... Uh, how do you explain when you served as the rabbi of Vassar Temple in Poughkeepsie, New York? How do you explain? How did you explain to your congregation this radical change from the days of awe, Jewish uh, New Year and Yom HaKippurim, the Day of Atonement, to this joyous festival of Sukkot? Yes. Um, well, I think there were there are two ways of looking at it. I think there's a historic way, um, and, and I would give them a little bit of the history that I, I think that in um, biblical times or perhaps in uh, the late pre-Christian centuries uh, going into the first century of the Christian era, uh, when, the, uh, when uh, Judaism was very much centered around the temple in Jerusalem, the uh, the the big deal holiday, the central holiday, was Sukkot. It was the, it was the celebration. Sukkot was a combination of Thanksgiving uh, and the Canada Day and um, uh, what else? Uh, New Year's Eve, all put together. It was a celebration of eating, of drinking, of joy, of fireworks. You name it. It was a uh, a massive celebration. And one of the things that can make a massive celebration feel even more massive 
is if you have a sort of a solemn, quiet convocation beforehand. Um, uh, a little bit of um, uh, quietness so that when you go into the celebration, first of all, you've gathered all your energy and you're ready just simply to party. Um, and I think that that was what it was in, um, in late temple times. Uh, so much so that the holiday was not even called Sukkot. It was simply called the holiday. Ha-hag in Hebrew. Yeah, ha-ha-hag. Uh, just simply the holiday. So if I say, what are you going to do for the holiday? Everybody would know what holiday I was talking about, uh, which means that it was that central. Um, the I think that once you get into post-temple times, um, there is a, a, a switch that takes place, and, and this would be perhaps what I would uh, explain to my congregation as well, and that is that after a period of time of denial and introspection and the fear and terror theologically and personally that might take place around uh, the Day of Atonement and the, uh, the possibility of gaining atonement and feeling uh, as if you are worthy of having your sins forgiven, after such a, uh, an, an intense period, you need relief. You know, after going through something like that, what do you want to do afterwards? You want a party. <laughs> you need you need a party afterwards, uh, and uh, and therefore the psychology I think switched around for the uh, the the notion of introspection and meditation as being um, a, a way of of building up to the party. The party now is a way of having a release after the period of introspection and atonement but but that would be the idea let's okay we've gone through rosh hashanah we fasted through yom kippur let's party now we'll have sukkot uh and and have a good time let me ask you a question do you think that this understanding of the holiday was intentionally uh designed by the uh post-temple rabbinate or was it simply their interpretation of what had already been in existence in the Torah? Uh, that's a good question. I do think that it, I, I think it evolved. Um, and uh, the, I, I think that what we read in the Torah both reflects an on-the-ground reality and shapes and gives uh, meaning to that on on the ground reality. After all, um, the harvest that is is going to sustain one through the winter months um, is a, a really big deal. This is this is our food until we're we're next able to plant and sow again. We need this food for the next uh, three to six months until we we have a new crop. Uh, of the uh, of the first fruits of the spring, um, so this would be a, a major deal. This would be a, an, an occasion of uh, of celebration and joy. That's why uh, we, we have the holiday of Thanksgiving taking place in the fall, um, both as a Canadian and as an American uh, practice, uh, precisely to um, uh, to give thanks uh, for. Um, uh, the Earth's bounty at a time in which we most need the Earth's bounty, when we can no longer just simply go outside and forage for food, 
we need we need to harvest and have it stored. Are so, are you suggesting that the um, uh, certainly in America in the United States the story of the first uh, Christian settlers the Pilgrims, uh, which gives rise to most of the uh, symbolic observance of American Thanksgiving. Are you suggesting that that was purposely a uh, reinterpretation of Sukkot that they knew from the Torah? I, 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 it must have uh, uh, must have had some impact. It, it, it definitely had to have some impact. Um, it also suggests something that is uh, deeply embedded within uh, humankind that you one one has a celebration at the time of a harvest, Correct. Um, and, and that would be significant. So, so, uh, so Sukkot becomes an essential, powerful uh, observance in the Jewish calendar, um, but today, of course. Uh, most Jews live in an urban society. Um, prior to 1948, the vast majority of the Jewish community did not live in an agricultural society like Israel. Uh, what kept the festival of Sukkot uh, alive and preeminent in the minds of the Jewish people? Yeah, I think that's an absolutely central question. Uh, and I'm going to uh, try to provide uh, sort of a two-part answer to it. Um, <clears throat> first of all, even if um, Jews uh, becoming an increasingly urban population uh, were um, mostly cut off from the land, they were not cut off from an awareness of where their food was uh, originating. Um, you know, you, you can talk to a kindergartner or, uh, or uh, somebody in grade one today, uh, and say, where do you get your food? And they can say in the supermarket, but the, the, they know that the, you know that the, it got to the supermarket from somewhere else. So it, we're aware of the bounty of the earth, uh, and indeed, Jews try to make a point of that every time they bring food to their mouth. They're supposed to recite a blessing, particularly a blessing that uh, expresses the notion that we praise God for bringing bread. Your bread in the most general sense, meaning any sort of a sustenance from the earth, and we praise God for the sustenance that is derived from the earth. We're aware of it all the time. So th that would have been there even if we were no longer directly connected to the land, um, and, and it would be worthy of, uh, of uh, acknowledgement and celebration. But I do think that the inability to actually go out and harvest, to, to feel the fruits of, of, uh, of one's labor uh, physically after a, uh, after a growing season by going out and harvesting, that was probably lost. That a powerful emotional content that would have been associated with the holiday of Sukkot was, uh, was uh, gone once you moved into the city, once you were you know, living in a more urban type of an experience. Um, and it would be much, much harder to bring up a sense of joy. So that gets to the second part. And, and you've already um, touched upon it in your introduction. And that is that we read the Torah in an annual recitation. Now, historically, that wasn't the case. 
the Torah would be read uh, a few verses a week over a, a period of time, usually well over three years, uh, that it would take to actually read through the entire Torah. And then when you were finished with the reading of the Torah after about 160, 170, maybe even 180 weeks, um, you would celebrate uh, the concluding of the reading of the Torah uh, with a celebration of the Torah and, and then start over again. Uh, that celebration would take place whenever it occurred. It wasn't fixed at any particular time. But after the um, the Jews had become an urbanized community, they started to read the Torah in an annual reading so that the beginning and the end of the reading of the Torah would take place at exactly the same time every year. Now, when would that be? Well, it, once once you start an annual reading, you can start it any time you want. We could have started it in November or April or August. It would have made no difference. Once you start, you, then you do an annual reading. But it was specifically started at the conclusion of Sukkot. And the reason uh, for that would be to give meaning to the holiday? Yes, I think that that's what... It, it's not so much that it gave meaning to the holiday. Well, what it particularly did is it gave meaning to what uh, Shmini Atzeret. Um, uh, I think you'll saying. have to spend a moment helping our listeners uh, understand Shmini Atzeret in the context that you're using it. Yes, absolutely. Think about it this way, that the um, in late temple times... So for the, for the listener who may not know what that means... The temple that Rabbi Gollum refers to is the second temple built by, according to tradition, Ezra and Nehemiah returning from Babylonia in the uh, sixth century before the Common Era and destroyed by the Romans in the first century of the Common Era, usually assigned to the date 70. So when Rabbi Gollum says the late temple period, He's referring to the time surrounding that destruction. Would that yeah. be correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. Say so the last few uh, centuries before the Christian era uh, and uh, the uh, first century, what what, uh, what Christians would refer to as B.C. and A.D., uh, right in, at that period of time. Um, that then that's that's the period of the time of the temple. There. Uh, the, the, the Torah itself suggests that uh, it was incumbent upon uh, Jews or Israelites to take their produce directly to Jerusalem and to engage in a celebration of, of seven days in Jerusalem. Um, so you'd have this big deal seven-day celebration. Uh, uh, rabbinic literature suggests, as I said, it would be feasting and fireworks and dancing and, uh, and all sorts of wonderful things. But then when it was over... You needed one day, uh, I guess, to get back to usual. Think about this. Go out on a, on a vacation, have a really wonderful, exciting uh, vacation, um, doing all sorts of uh, uh, active things, whether it's um, uh, camping or, or tourism or, or things along those lines. And then when you get home, what do you need? You need one day before you go back to work. So I think that Shemini Atzeret was initially conceived as, as exactly that day, a buffer between the big celebration of Sukkot and uh, back to business as usual. Now, and and I think that was, that's what its purpose was. So what you're suggesting, if I understand you correctly, 
is that the Torah, which commands this eighth day, uh, the purpose for the eighth day was, um, how should we say, massaged in the late temple period so that um, the Jews had a better sense, <coughs> pardon me, of its meaning or a better sense of its purpose? Well, well, I, I'm not sure. In the late Temple times, I think that it, it, it had its exact practical purpose. It was the day in which one returned home. Ah, but it okay. was the day that was between the active celebration of Sukkot and the everyday activity of the rest of, of the rest of the year. Good. Um, one day of decompression. Uh, um, and and I think that that's uh, why it, it, it was called the eighth day of conclusion at Seret. That uh, it was, you know, it was, it wasn't Sukkot. It wasn't the rest of the year. You know, it was that uh, in between time, but a time in which you, you could just simply, you weren't obligated to go back to work. Well, it would also have been, I think, a day of uh, transportation, yes? Uh, yeah, Jews, Jews yeah. who had come from all over uh, ancient Judea and Galilee to observe the festival would need a day to uh, return home. And interestingly enough, the Torah says it's a day of gathering. Um, and that could be interpreted in so many different ways by uh, the ancient Hebrews. Uh, Absolutely. Right. Uh, it, it, yeah, it could, it, it, it's um, exactly that. But I think that it, it has this feeling of being somewhere between holiday itself, which was Sukkot, and, um, and, getting on with uh, the rest of life. So um, so you have uh, wonderfully explained to our listeners uh, the celebration as it might have existed in ancient times, and you've uh, helped them understand what originally Shmini Atzeret might be. But today we live in post-Temple times, and though there are some who yearn and teach about the uh, return of a third temple, at the present moment, that's not on the drawing board. So we live with uh, the reality, which is that we have a festival that we're commanded to observe uh, that centers around temple sacrificial cult, but we don't have a temple. So how then does uh, this become observed today? Right. So I think that uh, um, we, we do a number of things during Sukkot, um, erect these um, temporary uh, dwellings. Um, what's significant about them is that they might have uh, either temporary or even sturdy walls, but they have a thatched roof. A roof that uh, simply does not protect you from the elements. Uh, if you were to sit in a sukkah and it's raining, you'd get wet. Uh, uh, so that it, it has that feeling of temporariness. But but even more, I, I think even more central and significant to that to that sukkah is 
it becomes an open dwelling for which you can invite guests. Houses might be formidable. You know, to go into a house, you have to knock on the door. But a, a sukkah is not supposed to have a door. The sukkah is supposed to have an opening. Um, and so it, it, it uh, becomes, uh, the, the holiday of Sukkot becomes convivial. And by placing the, the sukkah outside uh, and, and having meals there, you, you almost automatically open up for the possibility of people coming and joining you. It becomes a social event, uh, event of, of having guests and having friends over. And that would be part of the celebration. That was one way of giving it a celebratory feel. But I think that for many, many Jews today, uh, especially if it's very difficult, if you're living in a high-rise, uh, you're living where you don't have any uh, um, lawn or anything for, for erecting a, a temporary uh, booth, um, and and you can't quite do that, then the celebration then moves to uh, what the rabbis very cleverly did, is and they turned Shemini Atzeret into Simcha Torah, because the celebration of the reading of the Torah is something that everyone can do. Show up, dance with the Torah, uh, see the Torah up close, which you might not get a chance to do during the rest of the year, um, uh, particularly when it, when it gets opened and, and you can get right up and see what's inside it and everything. There you get a, an op, uh, a wonderful opportunity to have a real celebration. Uh, and over all the years that I was an active rabbi, uh, I, I could say that Sukkot was, so to speak, saved by Simchat Torah. Simchat Torah was the celebration that Sukkot might have been during the temple days. Wow. So, we have a biblically uh, commanded holiday of Sukkot and Shemini Atzeret. We have a holiday that morphs into Simchat Torah, which is uh, definitely not biblical. Would you like to hypothesize when uh, Simchat Torah uh, emerged as a primary observance of the Jewish people? Yeah, I would think... Uh it it, um, uh, it it had its uh, origins in the um, uh, the exilic community of Mesopotamia, what we refer to as Babylonia, um, modern day Iraq, uh, where uh, a large uh, and uh, very active uh, scholarly Jewish community uh, developed, uh, particularly following the destruction of the temple uh, in the first century of the Christian era, um, that. That's where um, all the evidence is that an annual reading of the Torah developed, and, if, and, and with it then being annual, that was probably when Simchat Torah was uh, fixed to the conclusion of, uh, of the holiday of Sukkot. Um, also, the evidence is that by uh, the beginning of the ninth century, around the year 800, um, this practice of an annual reading was now pretty much universal among all Jewish communities. Uh, and Simchat Torah is now observed by everyone, including even those Jews who continue to live in the land of Israel. You know, um, I'm hoping that our uh, listeners understand this very interesting journey that you've taken them on to uh, really uh, hear how Judaism has survived over the course of uh, centuries. Um, by uh, massaging its uh, biblically commanded festivals 
into more accessible festivals and how they've symbolically uh, massaged their observance of God and their observance of covenantal responsibilities. Um, that's been a fascinating journey that you've taken us on. Um, we have just a few mi- few seconds left. I'm wondering if you want to give a last thought about the conclusion yeah. of this festival during the pandemic. Yeah, yeah, I did want to touch on it. It's one of the reasons I mentioned that uh, a fundamental purpose of the sukkah is for the welcoming of guests. Um, it's also a shelter that is a fragile shelter. Um, we're in an, a period this year of social distancing that makes having guests over somewhat difficult. Uh, and even our own homes uh, feel much more of a fragile type of a shelter uh, against a, um, a highly contagious and potentially dangerous disease. Um, this is a year in which um, uh, they, the, the, the sense of, of uh, how um, fragile our lives can be, how powerful the symbol of the sukkah, though limited to only seven days of a, of a year, um, n- nonetheless has an, an enduring meaning. Uh, we are always in fragile shelter, uh, and that maybe that's something that will carry uh, and give greater meaning and, and significance to the holiday in future years when this pandemic is over. Well, I would believe it will be over. I want to thank my guest, Rabbi uh, Paul Gollum of Vassar Temple, Poughkeepsie, New York, for sharing with us some interesting insights into the Jewish holiday of Sukkot and Shemini Atzeret. You can listen to a podcast of our show on iTunes or the CHRI website. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten wishing you shalom and have a good day. Yeah.